We just sang, Heaven Came Down and Glory Filled My Soul. And I could have sworn that Haldor Lillinus wrote that because of just the way it sounds. I thought I I knew him, but it's not. John Peterson. Can I tell tell it? I'll tell it. The year was 1961. As a teenager, John W. Peterson dreamed of being a singer and a soloist. He often sang on local radio programs and in churches. He said, only in singing did I feel competent and confident. Here was at least one place where I could excel. I knew it, and I made the most of it. It's good to know what you're doing, isn't it? One summer, John got a job at a factory earning 15 cents an hour at a machine making canvas for wheat binders. The machines were so noisy, sang at the top of his lungs, hours on end. (laughs) Sorry, it's a personal inside joke. Making up melodies and imagining he was on stage, John realized too late that he was ruining his voice. I put such a terrific strain on my faltering voice, he wrote, through overuse and inexperience that I damaged it beyond repair. When I realized fully what had happened, that my voice would never again be beautiful, I suffered such an emotional shock that it took months before I recovered. Looking back now, John is grateful. If that had not happened, I might never have developed as a writer, he wrote. With my voice damaged, I turned more and more to writing, and that talent was allowed to emerge and develop. What at first seemed a tragedy was used for good, and the course of my life began to take shape. Today, John W. Peterson is called the Dean of Modern Hymn Writers. He's the author of such favorites as So Send I You, It Took a Miracle, Surely Goodness and Mercy, Jesus Led Me All the Way, No One Understands Like Jesus, and I Believe in Miracles. Heaven Came Down, one of John's most popular compositions, was written during the summer of 1961. I know we're old school, and so we're singing really, really, really old music from 1961, which is before some of you were born, so it's ancient history. He was ministering at Montrose Bible Conference grounds in Montrose, Pennsylvania. During one of those sessions here, there he had an opportunity for, um, an opportunity was given for people to share a word of testimony. A man known, known as Old Jim rose to his feet and told of how he'd come to Christ. It seemed like heaven came down and glory filled my soul, he said. So John Peterson ripped off the Old Jim who, told, who, who made the, the, the phrase. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Right away, I sensed that it would be a fine title for a song he wrote, so I wrote it down, and later in that week, completed the song. It became a favorite almost immediately. And I'm reading from uh, Robert Morgan, Then Sings My Soul, Volume 2, which happened to have Heaven Came Down. Um, I told Claire, let's sing that one, because it's such a great um, and uplifting song, and, and, uh, and it's got so much energy. And I said, I just love Haldor Lilliness who wrote um, several songs that we use, one of which is The Wonderful Grace of Jesus. And uh, I, thought, I thought surely it was him. But thank God for John Peterson and for uh, the wisdom to sing God's praises uh, in melody. Let's take a moment for silent prayer as we open uh, the word of God tonight in Acts chapter 13. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you tonight in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, proclaiming him and him alone, his glory, his excellence, and our privilege to know you through him. Father, you're magnificent in all that you've revealed to us. We praise you for him, the word who became flesh and revealed him to us. 
Father, it is our desire to be occupied with your son, to ever be walking with you, to abide in him, to walk by your spirit, to be all that you desire for us and not waste our lives with what the sin nature drives us to, which is a living for self, disregarding your revelation, seeking to uh, just divert our, our attention from uh, the boredom of life and all the distractions we get caught up in, Father. We want to keep you ever before us, be occupied with your son as we consider how you've revealed in the Old Testament this promise of resurrection. Uh, let it be so for us tonight, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Taking a, a doctrinal pause in Isaiah 24 through 27, the little apocalypse of Isaiah, a summary of many of the end time events that after Isaiah's day would be given greater detail in the progress of God's revelation. Isaiah 24 through 27 gives you a lot of uh, overview and summary of the coming tribulation. Um, we're uh, looking because of 20... 619, the, this prophecy of resurrection, and what the Old Testament has to say about the resurrection. The promise of resurrection, as the Apostle Paul says, according to the scriptures. And last time we did uh, a, a misguided thing, some might think, but I really enjoyed it. We walked from Isaiah chapter 21 through 26 and basically, summer, in a summary fashion, told the story of Paul before the Jews and the rulers, the Roman rulers over Judea, between Jerusalem and Caesarea Maritima, there on the Mediterranean coast near Jerusalem, how Paul testified before the Jewish town, the Jewish mob in the city of Jerusalem, and then before uh, the Roman procurator, and then before eventually um, the Edomian consultant uh, Agrippa, and that's Acts 26, where Paul says it is all about the resurrection. By way of review, does anyone remember how Paul uh, made his appeal? How, how the, the substance of his argument? Remember this, if you don't remember anything else. In the book of Acts, we have the story of Paul meeting the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus three times. The story is told three times in Luke's writing of Acts. It may be more, but I know it's at least three. The first is in Acts 9. In the narrative of the events, you have the Luke telling the story of Saul of Tarsus meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. But again, in Acts 22, he tells the men of Jerusalem. And they're good with hearing that the Jewish Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth, and it has resurrected, and I saw him on the road to Damascus. And then they, they start a riot when he says, and he sent me to the Gentiles. And, and racism bubbles up. And that, that's the, the breakdown where they, uh, the, the Romans have to run in and, and save him because the Jews are going to tear him apart. Then in Acts 26, he tells the story again to King Agrippa in, uh, under Festus. And so what's the point? Why do I bring this up to you? Because when Paul has to testify before a Jewish audience, he tells them that I met the Messiah and he's risen. I met him. That's Paul's, the substance of Paul's testimony. And there's something in this that you and I can take from this. Not that we need to imagine or hallucinate ourselves a vision of Jesus. That's not the, the takeaway. You're not going to have that experience. If you've trusted in Christ, you've done it through testimony. 
And there's a chain of testimony. There's a spiritual genealogy, if you will, back from Paul, the, Gent- the apostle to the Gentiles and all the work he did in the Mediterranean Roman world. And we came from England and England was part of the Roman Empire. And that's the story. And there's a whole chain of people that have testified. What's the takeaway? It's not that you're going to see a vision of Christ or that you have seen a vision of Christ. I dare say no one here can claim that they became a convert by seeing, by being blinded by uh, the, the actual sight of the glorified, resurrected Christ. And yet the miracle of your new birth has happened if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior on that testimony that the Holy Spirit has made real to you, that he's worked in you, that he has provided that clarity, that understanding, and you have trusted in Christ. But here's the thing that you can take away from Paul's testimony. He tells them what happened to him. He can say without any question, and no one can ever take it from him, that Jesus saved me. I met him and he saved me. And furthermore, he's the crucified and resurrected Savior. And he saved me. And that I contend, and I said it last time, I believe this is the most powerful way to testify to an unbelieving world that Jesus Christ saved you from your sins. And he's the one who died for your sins and rose from the dead. And you are now, by Paul's witness, and the, the way Luke tells it three times, equipped to tell people in a matter of speaking, you met Jesus. In the preaching of the gospel, you met Jesus Christ and you trusted in him and he gave you his life. And the resurrected one has promised your resurrection to be with him forever. And you can say that. And, and I didn't say that they're going to receive it. And Paul's telling, they don't generally. Agrippa almost does. Hey, Paul, you keep talking. I'm going to become a Christian. The Roman says, this is insane. And Paul has already written 1 Corinthians when, he, when, when the Roman says that. When Festus says, Paul, your learning has driven you mad. We've already read in 1 Corinthians that this is foolishness to the world. Of course, they think we're crazy. They also think we're the scum of the earth and a lot of other things. It's okay. I'm not saying that they're going to receive that testimony. I'm saying that, biblically speaking, it's perhaps the most powerful way to say it. So, if you're in a personal connection with someone, remember the most important thing about your person, about your personal life. And let's not pretend like we're somebody we're not. Let's not pretend that we are really being known by the other person if they're not knowing what Christ has done for us. Another thing I would say to you by way of encouragement in your evangelism, in your sharing Christ, in your bearing witness for Christ, because you have the Holy Spirit too. You don't know how that seed that you plant is going to grow. You don't generally get to see it. You don't know. You don't know how your words are going to impact someone. And you don't know about the many thousands of things that are going on or millions of things in someone's life where your message, where your testimony is, has an impact. I'll give you an example. When I was in the army, I was surrounded by many intelligent and impressive young men. More intelligent and far more impressive than I was. And that was one of my privileges in life is just to be surrounded by some really excellent people. And uh, probably some of these men are generals now, and some of them are not because this is not the nature of uh, the military today that these excellent people may become generals. But, but some of them may be general officers at this point 
or, or being looked at for uh, Brigadier General. Um, I, I think that's where our class is now, is they're getting looked at. These excellent young men. And they say, there's a, a saying in the military that the cream rises to the top. One of the most impressive young men I ever knew, um, I did not know what his religion was, and I, I was very clandestine, generally speaking, when I was in the military. Uh, I'm not proud of that, but I think I was fairly clandestine for the first three years, anyway, of my active service. I didn't talk about my faith very much. I was, I was learning my trade, and you know, I kept work, work, and stuff. And I just, I didn't understand the mission. I'll tell you that all day. It's, I, I'm shame of, of this, but um, I was in the word. I just didn't understand how it applied to my witness to the people around me. And, and I, I, you know, I'm a work in progress like all of us. And uh, no excuse, sir. But anyway, I remember having a conversation with one of these excellent uh, thoroughbreds that was just going to go places. And I was always kind of intimidated around this guy. And, um, but you never let that on, right? That, um, that they're intimidating because then, you know, that's, that's merciless. So you just kind of... And I remember we had a, a personal conversation. We got to know each other fairly well professionally. And um, uh, after a few months of, of our association, I kind of let it slip that I was a Christian and I was thinking of being a pastor. I thought that was my calling. And this was all preparation. I wanted to serve my country and then go, go serve that way. And, um, and we were friendly enough at that point for me to say, so like that's kind of, he said, what? I said, that, you know, that, like you, you probably think that's kind of dumb or something, right? And he goes, no, um, I am really impressed by that. And I was shocked. I was like, I'm not impressive. You guys are impressive. I really felt that way with some of these people. They were really amazing um, athletes and, and brains. And, and, um, and I, I did not realize how my life had an impact on this, this person. And, and I could just see him say, no, that's, that's significant. And that's one of those awakening moments for me in my life where I said, I should be talking about Jesus to people more. I should be more comfortable. And I was, I was growing spiritually into that comfort to be able to talk about my faith with people. But I was, my assumption was that the thoroughbreds I was around were way too important and, and flashy to be worried about, you know, um, Paul, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When you know Christ's power is brought to its completion in our weakness, and so I, just by way of illustration, I wasn't really a very good witness for my Savior in this phase of my life, um, and many and for many reasons I can say that I wasn't you know, but but I was uh, somewhat competent in my work. I trusted God with that. It was part of my spiritual life. Um, I would talk about my faith when I had the occasion, and I had no idea that seeds were being planted in, in my relationships, and you don't either. You don't know how you're handling conflict is being observed. You don't know how you're impressing people, how your choices are impacting other people. You just can't know. But you do know that you have a Savior, and He's supposed to ever be before you in your thoughts. You do know that your choices matter. So back to the gospel, I tell someone I trust in Jesus as my Savior. He, he died for my sins and rose from the dead. And his promise is resurrection for all of us. And we have to trust in him. And I've put my faith in him and he saved me. He gave me new life. 
and he stabilizes me, and I trust in him, and every day of my life is really about him if it's a good day, even when it's a bad day. And that testimony that I can have, that you can have for your Savior, you, you are planting a seed that might be, uh, you might receive someone spit in your face for it. They may slam the door in your face. They may, they may laugh at you. You might have any kind of possible, any number of possible responses, and you just have no idea the, the real impact your words have. And you think about the people you've shared Christ with in your life that haven't trusted, that haven't received it as far as you knew. The longer ago that was, if the person's still alive, the probably more impactful that testimony is having in a way you have no idea. Because the truth is that everybody, when they go to bed at night, has to look up at the ceiling and wonder, at some point, what happens? What happens when I die? We're all, we're all cool and, and collected and, and clever and brazen uh, when we're around other people, but when we're by ourselves, we have these secret thoughts, and uh, you just ha- you can't you can't know, so leave it to God and bear witness and do it in the power of the Spirit because you're living your life for God in a context of His power by His grace, loving as Christ has called you to love, with a conscience that's calibrated by God's Word that's constantly saturating your soul. That's the Christian life, and it has a purpose. All right, with that introduction, let's go to um, Acts chapter. 13, we're asking the question in our notes, uh, and it, I think there's one set of notes on the track track outside. Um, we've been looking at the New Testament testimony and asking the question, based on how the New Testament teaches what the Old Testament says, are we supposed to expect that the resurrection is taught in the Old Testament? I know that's a pretty complicated way to approach it, but just think about it with me. If we believe in Christ and his apostles and therefore the New Testament, that his promise in uh, John 14 would be fulfilled, that what they were taught by Jesus, he would bring to their memory through the Holy Spirit. If we believe in the New Testament, then as we study it, we have to ask the question, do the Old Testament writers and teachers, does Jesus himself, does Paul, does Peter, do they think that the Old Testament taught the resurrection? Last time in Acts 26, we saw that the Old Testament, according to the Apostle Paul,
13 of Acts 13. Put out to sea from Paphos and, be, and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now that event, John leaving them is just kind of, Luke just kind of touches it and moves on. This event is the cause for the breakup of the great missionary duo of Paul and Barnabas. Because the son of encouragement, Barnabas, that's not his real name, but that's what everyone calls him. They call him the son of encouragement. You're an encourager. Barnabas says on the next trip, let's take um, Mark with us. And Paul says, no, I had to carry all that luggage that he was supposed to carry. And um, I I had my own gear and he was going to carry the the scrolls or whatever. And I had to carry it and I'm not going to take him. I'm not going to trust him. Um, He's, he's not, he's not ready yet. And this caused such a breakdown, uh, such a dissension between the two that uh, Barnabas takes Mark with him and Paul goes uh, off by himself later on. But this is the event in, in his life. Later on, Paul will say, uh, uh, John Mark is useful to me. And um, we have to be grateful for Barnabas and for the big split. It's one of those things in the Bible where you have two people and you could argue kind of both positions and it's a wisdom call. But because of the split up, we have the gospel of Mark. I am absolutely certain that the split up, we have the gospel of Mark. I am absolutely certain that John Mark was discipled by Barnabas and later Peter. And, and it is under Peter's tutelage that he writes the gospel of Mark. That's why there's no gospel by Peter because Mark discipled by Barnabas and later Peter. And, and it is under Peter's tutelage that he writes the gospel of Mark. That's why there's no gospel by Peter because Mark wrote it. There's no gospel by Paul. Luke wrote it. And that's how those two gospels work. But anyway, so Paul, Luke wrote it. And that's how those two gospels work. But anyway, so that's part of the story of Paul's life. Going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. So Antiochus is a famous name. A lot of people are named Antiochus, and so places are named after him, Antioch. Syrian Antioch, north of Jerusalem, just up the street from Jerusalem, uh, or from from Israel, up north in Syria, uh, or from from Israel, up north in Syria, is the first church that sent missionaries, and the first place we were called Little Christs, or church that sent missionaries, and the first place we were called Little Christs, or Christians. Never let someone tell you that we shouldn't be called Christians, that we should be called Christ followers, or some other thing we shouldn't be called Christians, that we should be called Christ followers or some other thing. Christian is something we've been called since the first century AD, and it means little Christ, and they're making fun of us. And we took it as a badge of honor. No one's taking that of honor. No one's taking that away from us. Even if people claim to be Christian who are not. But that's an Antioch of Syria. Now, they're in Turkey now in Antioch of Pisidia in southern, the southern Galatian region. And they went to the synagogue and sat down. Now, why does Paul go to the synagogue? The hint is Rome the synagogue and sat down. Now, why does Paul go to the synagogue? The hint is Romans chapter 1, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Now, God had established this diaspora through the destruction of um, 586 of Nebuchadnezzar. The synagogue system is born because the temple is destroyed and we still have to worship and we still have to, and the center of the Jewish faith is the Torah, is the scriptures, the Bible. And so we still need to read our Torah and we still need to do what we can, even though there's no temple. And that's the, the uh, very thumbnail sketch of the origin of the synagogue system. And it's dispersed in a diaspora throughout the Mediterranean world, throughout the Gentile world. There's little enclaves of Jews everywhere. 
because of the scattering out of the land, because they were kicked out of the land. And this is judgment for their idolatry, and God promised he would do it in Leviticus 26, and they pushed him to the point where he did it. But God had a plan, and in his glorious majesty and in his amazing grace, he set up a missionary outpost all over the Mediterranean world that in almost every town Paul goes to, there's a synagogue to go and say, we just read scriptures, they're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, he fulfilled these things, and you need to trust in him. And a very small minority of the people in the synagogues believed in Christ when Paul preached the gospel to them from the Old Testament scriptures. And that's what we're talking about here, where Paul's preaching the gospel to them from the Old Testament scriptures. But you have to understand that that requires the resurrection, that Jesus of Nazareth fits the bill all the way down the line from Psalm 22 to Isaiah 53, especially since he was raised from the dead. So Paul goes into the synagogue and sat down, and some say that this is a rabbi move to sit down. The, the, the legend is, or I shouldn't say the legend, but the, the history that I've, I've understood from some is that in, in the synagogue system in some quarters, the people stand and the rabbi sits, the opposite of today, we stand and, and you sit. Pastor stands and, and the teacher stands and the, everyone sits. And there's something biblical about the standing because in First Thessalonians, uh, the, there's a challenge to honor those who stand in front, literally. Um, and so, but but here uh, Paul sits down and it may be he takes the role of authority that he carries as a rabbi by sitting down. And after reading the law and the prophets, the synagogue official sent to them saying, "Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it." Oh, you want me to tell you my word of exhortation? This is happening to us right now in Norwich Public Schools. They have seven schools, and they want a good news club. The, ta- the, the, the school system wants a good news club in each school. It's a good thing. It's been good for them, and they like it, and it's helpful. And so we have four schools that have not got good news clubs in them in Norwich. Do you have any word of exhortation for us, brethren? Well, let me tell you what I have to say is what Paul does. He stands up and does he stand up? He stood up and motioning with his hand, which is how you orate. He said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, there's two categories of people he addresses. Men of Israel and you who fear God, there's Jews and Gentile proselytes or Gentile interested people that are uh, allowed to listen, who fear God, God fearers. And we're going to hear about them in the story. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. Well, talk about grabbing some context. Let me take you back to the Exodus event. The God of our fathers, that's the Abraham story, Isaac, Jacob, into the land of Egypt. He's summarizing, he's thumbnailing Jewish history. Can you do it? Can you walk somebody through it? Because Paul does it here. This is the book of Acts. This is how God the Holy Spirit built the church through the apostles. Stephen does it first in Acts 7. Can you thumbnail the story? God called, I like to put it on the timeline. Abraham's about 2000 BC. The Exodus is about 1446 BC. About, how about that for some specific dating? About 1446. If someone tells you, no, I've been in the 1200s because of Pharaoh so-and-so. No, it's in the 1440s. It has to be BC. And so 3,500 years ago, in round numbers, we're around 2,000. And so, you know, put it through. David is about 1,000 B.C. going forward. And you just keep working the timeline. 586, they're kicked out of the land. Um, and then Jesus comes and dies for our sins on the cross. 
I contend, in 33 AD. I know that there's a popular view that says it's in 30 AD, but I think it's 33 AD. With an uplifted arm, he led them out of Egypt. That's Exodus chapter 14. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. There's a great summary of much of the narrative in the book of Numbers. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, what book is that? Now we're in Joshua. He's just walking you through the Old Testament. Isn't that cool? Now, if you're doing your Bible, you know, it's February in the year of 2023. If you're doing your Bible read through, maybe you're in Joshua by now. Or maybe you've gone through this, but that's what Paul, he's just stepping through and he starts with the God of our fathers. And this is what you can do with a Jewish synagogue listening audience. You can tell them and remind them of their history and it's about God's work. It's notice that it's all about what God did. He put up with them in the wilderness. He destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan. He distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. In telling the story of Israel, notice that Paul makes God the... God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, is the protagonist. He's the one that is the hero of the story. So in verse 20, and after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Joshua, judges, first Samuel. We're just kind of tracking through Jewish history, right? Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king in first Samuel chapter 8. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish. Boy, did he ever give them a king. A man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. 40 years isn't a great look for them in the way Paul tells the story. 40 years of discipline where the Exodus generation died off after Kadesh Barnea. 40 years of King Saul and the torment. If you want a king like the Gentiles, here's a knucklehead. And that's that's my theological technical summary of the ministry of God's anointed Saul the king of Israel, the first king who died uh, by suicide when he fell on a sword at Mount Gilboa. After he had removed him, after God had removed him, he raised up David to be their king concerning whom he also testified and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. The first reference to David is not by name David. It's in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel when God is rejecting Saul. He says, you won't do my will. Your heart is not what I want. I'm going to find one that's after my own heart. And that's the way David is first referenced. I love when you, uh, when you have somebody important like this in their first reference. Like woman is first called Ezer Konegdo, uh, the helper suitable in Genesis 2.18. There's no Isha yet. There's no uh, sleep. There's no rib. There's no surgery. There's just a need. And God says in Genesis 2.18, I'll make man a suitable helper, an Ezer Konegdo. That's the first reference of woman in the Bible, Genesis 2.18. Well, here the first reference to David is somebody, Saul, don't bother with who, somebody who is after my heart, a man after my heart, and it's, it's going to be David, the son of Jesse. From the, from the descendants of David, now Saul hits fast forward, Paul hits fast forward in the story. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. We just went from David to uh, 4 B.C., So a thousand years just elapsed in verse 23 as he develops the timeline. From the descendants of David, according to the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7, that David will have a son to sit on his throne forever. His throne be established forever. And that's the throne of the king of Israel over Israel. And it turns out over all the nations in the forever kingdom. And that he would have a son to sit on his throne forever. 
And through this man, according to this promise of the Davidic covenant and the Davidic promise of 2 Samuel 7, God has brought to Israel a Savior who is Jesus. And after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of, of, of Israel. Okay, so we just went through the entire uh, life of Jesus to the beginning of his public ministry where he was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And now we're talking about John. Now, why does Paul talk about John like everybody just knows who he's talking about? Now, this is in the Roman province of Galatia. It's um, pretty far removed from Jerusalem where these things took place uh, outside of Jerusalem in the Jordan River. Why is uh, Paul talking about this? Because the people of Israel know about these things. The word gets around. The proof that this is true, that you have a very vibrant communication network on these Roman roads, the proof of this is how Paul is constantly dogged after this event by people that are Jewish and hate him and want to kill him for what he's saying about Jesus of Nazareth. The word gets around, and these people over here are going to follow Paul around and eventually get back to Jerusalem and get him in trouble, as we saw in Acts chapter 21. After John had proclaimed, uh, God has brought to Israel a Savior who is Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So notice that God is the protagonist. David isn't, Saul isn't, Paul who's preaching these things. He isn't the hero. It's God brought Israel a Savior. And that is Jesus. Uh, and what did the people probably hear? He's probably speaking Aramaic to them. Uh, perhaps he's speaking Greek because it's the Greek, the Greek speaking world in the diaspora. So maybe they don't speak, uh, the dialect that's going on in Judea. So perhaps he's speaking Greek. It's written by Luke. It's inspired word for word in Greek with Luke's pen, but he says, Jesus in Greek, that would be Yehoshua in, um, Aramaic, Joshua. And that is, um, just a name he throws out. People know, apparently, about this Savior who is Jesus. And so Paul is preaching the man that was crucified by Israel when he gets to verse 23. While John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Now, I want you to think about the way Paul is selective in telling his story. The way Luke tells it, we have just, in one verse, skipped a thousand years of Jewish history, and now we're looking at the, the, the ties on Jesus' sandals. Because that's one of the great statements of John the Baptist that puts John, he's telling everyone who he is, and it puts him in his place. I'm nothing special. It's about the one who's coming. And I am uh, set apart to God, and I'm, I'm the real deal as a prophet, and I'm really uh, preaching the word that I've received, but... But I'm nothing. The one who's coming, I don't even deserve to touch his sandals. And that's true. Why is it true? Because John is not without sin. John, like all of us, for choices that he made probably the day that he said these words, John deserves the lake of fire. And John doesn't just deserve the lake of fire because of his personal sins that he committed in this life. He committed those personal sins because he was born in Adam and he was born a sinner. Adam's original sin was imputed to him. And so he was condemned under that curse that we're all condemned under from the very moment of his birth. 
It wasn't that he learned personal sin patterns as he developed from being a baby to a toddler to, um, to, to, to being the mature adult that he was. It's that he was born as a sinful, broken human. And like all of us, he needed a savior. And so he's right. John doesn't deserve to touch his feet because Jesus Christ is the only righteous man who was ever born. And he lived a perfectly sinless life to give us eternal life by dying in our place, having no sin in himself. He died for your sins and mine. And so John is absolutely right to say, I don't deserve to untie a sandal. And when you say it that way and you think that's true, we, we don't. We don't deserve to wash his feet. And then you say, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. It showed us what God is really like what's really involved in the coming to save us and the cross work and that, that he being the Lord of all donned the towel to serve us in the lowest possible position it really helps us understand who we're dealing with but he's exalted here in verse 25 brethren sons of Abraham's family those among you who fear God who aren't sons of Abraham's family it'll turn out that's important as the story unfolds you, you Gentiles who fear God, let to, the, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. Now notice God did, God did, God did, God did. God brought Jesus, God did, and now to us this message has been sent. We are simply carrying a commission that we've been given by the protagonist of the story. And that's a really important point of application for us. It's not about us. If it was about us, then the flower would be about the pot. If it was about us, then the diamond would be about the pretty gold ring that you put the diamond in. But the, it can't be about the setting. It has to be about the jewel. We're not the jewel. We're the setting. We're not the flower. We're the pot. We're the vessel, the earthen broken vessel that God has reposed this infinite blessing and glory in called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the more we think it's about us, the more divorced from reality we become. And the more we focus on our Savior, the more he saves us in our experience from that horrible insanity. To us, this message of salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. Now that is a mouthful. Listen to it. The, the Jerusalem Jews, the ones that you have this burning in your heart to be with them at, at Passover, that you want to go to have the Feast of Tabernacles with them, those cousins over there that get to really live in Jerusalem, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which they read every Sabbath. They don't understand what they're reading. They're reading it, but they don't get it. They fulfilled the Sabbath or, or the prophecies. They fulfilled the prophets by content, condemning Jesus. So, so Paul is telling them their history, which is summarizing their, their, the Bible, the, the scriptures. He's, the whole appeal is from a summary of the scriptures. And he's saying, and while we're on the scriptures, the very condemnation of Jesus of Nazareth, David's son that was promised, fulfills what the scriptures expected. And, it, and it's, it's ironic that they read these scriptures and they don't know what they mean. I believe, this is my theological conviction, 
I'll summarize my theology of what we're dealing with here with this heathenism among the Jews where there's always been a remnant of believers and a large spinoff of, of people that didn't believe. It's called the doctrine of the remnant of Israel. I believe that every one who really understood what Moses was saying, everyone who trusted in the promise of the coming Messiah when Jesus, in, in the day in which Jesus was presented to Israel, I think everyone that had trusted in Messiah recognized him. I think they all received John's testimony. He's the one. And that's what John the Baptist's entire ministry was for, was to point out the Messiah, to prepare the nation to receive the Messiah. And how better than to point at him and say, he's the one. And prophetically, by the Spirit of God in me, I'm telling you, that's the one. I don't think anybody rejected that message who had received the promise and, and believed in the Scriptures. And so what I think you had is a massive corruption of the scriptures in Jesus day that's why John's calling them to repentance there's this massive deception that's happened where as Paul says there's a veil over the hearts of the Jewish people when their scriptures are being read they don't see they don't understand what it means they fulfilled the scriptures by condemning Christ where is that happening in Isaiah or Psalm 22 dogs have surrounded me they've pierced me through Read Psalm 22 and, and note, just think about how much of the events of the, res, of, the, of, the, of the crucifixion are happening in David's prophecy a thousand years before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me is how that psalm begins. Though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. So now we're zeroing in on the story of Jesus' suffering for our sins that the Jews in Jerusalem, put pressure on the Roman procurator, Pilate, to get him, um, to get him uh, crucified. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. So we have the crucifixion of Christ and all that was written about him. Isaiah 53 was fulfilled. And God the Son hung between heaven and earth and the flesh of mankind. All that was written of him. His name will be called Emmanuel, God with us, in Isaiah 7, 14. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries out from the cross, but David had written it a thousand years before in Psalm 22. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. All that was written concerning him, and as you start to think about the Old Testament, the entire sacrificial system of Leviticus is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. The patriarchal sacrifices, like Abraham on Mount Moriah, these are all pointing to him. The entirety of the Old Testament is looking for the coming blood sacrifice that would save mankind from our sins that began with Adam. Once they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. So he's still talking about what God did and what God said through these events. And in verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. Who's the protagonist in the story, right? That's God. God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. That's why I'm talking to you. So he's telling them the rest of the story and how he's connecting all the dots for them of the scriptures that this is what God did. And so the context is clear and it's very, it's very out there in front. Now the first Christians are all Jews, all sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The first Christians are all of Israel. It's Acts chapter 2. But very soon we realize that that's the remnant of Israel and it's a minority of the population. 
very soon it becomes that the Gentiles begin to receive this message more than the Jews do, as happens in Antioch of Pisidia. We preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. The resurrection of Messiah is the beginning of a fulfillment of God to the fathers and to our children, to the Jewish people. As it's written in the second Psalm, you're my son today, I've begotten you. Paul says a mouthful in verse 33 by saying that Psalm 2 is about the resurrection. That the today of today I've begotten you is a promise of resurrection. Now that's an interpretation that doesn't immediately occur to you as you read Psalm 2. But that's exactly what use Paul makes of it. And apparently it was a popular way to look at it in his day. But that God has fulfilled this promise, the good news of the promise made to our fathers, to our children, in that he raised up Jesus. It is also written in the second Psalm, you're my son, today I've begotten you. What, what does he say next? Ask of me and I'll give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron, you'll shatter them like earthenware. The coming kingdom, the promise of all, the land promise, the land forever the nation exalted forever, the blessing to all the nations forever. We're back to Genesis 12. See, the the resurrection is the beginning of the fulfillment of this promise because you have a forever king who can rule on this forever throne and subdue the nations from from Jerusalem and rule over all the nations. This is the the way God is going to bring about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead no longer to return to decay. He has spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, Isaiah 55, he quotes. Therefore, he also says another psalm in Psalm 16, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. So now he's laying out some of the explicit scriptures, well, I should say the, the scriptures that imply or speak of resurrection. For David, after he'd served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. Now, this is a very controversial thing Paul's saying. He just doesn't have any idea how the New Testament and Old Testament departments were going to really take him to the woodshed over how he uses this today. If only he had known, right? He's doing no-nos of interpretation because he's saying what David meant, what David, the author of Psalm 16, meant. Not that David is writing out of his mind, but that David knew David, after he'd served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers, and his body underwent decay. So Psalm 16 is first person, and we'll cover it. We'll do Psalm 16. It's one of the clear Old Testament passages that talks about resurrection, and we'll make the argument that David is talking about resurrection of the Messiah. It's a messianic psalm. But he whom God raised on the third day did not undergo decay. See, Jesus of Nazareth didn't undergo decay. So Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through whom everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. So let me ask you a question. Did Paul just, just go back to Moses and say, that's bad, throw it out? Did he just go back against it and push back? No, there's a timeline. There's a progress of revelation. There's a sequence. You all got killed by Moses. You're all in your sin and hopelessly condemned in sin. That's what the law does. It kills you. This is the argument in Galatians. 
Christ has taken that debt on himself and fulfilled the law regarding your sin. So through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things, the consequence of sin, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. So the theory that I'm going to obey the law in order to please God, try it, C.S. Lewis says. One of his evangelistic methods is to tell someone to try to be a good person and get back to me later after you fail. He said, let me, let me kind of summarize one of his arguments. One of the best methods is to tell someone uh, to you know, let them try to do the very best they can to keep the Ten Commandments. And only after they've fallen on their face enough times where they're frustrated and, and hopeless and, and confused can they say, what do I do? And you say, right, no one ever did this but Jesus. And he alone saves you by faith. And what you can do is trust in him. Now, I don't like that method because I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know how much time we have, and I don't want to play games with people or manipulate them. God can set those kinds of arrangements up. What I'm going to do is proclaim what Christ has done for me. He died for my sins, and he rose from the dead to give me eternal life, and I have it to you. Do you have it? Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you in Habakkuk 1. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I'm accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you'll never believe, though someone should describe it to you, that work of Nebuchadnezzar bringing the diaspora that brought the synagogue system that, in which he's standing here giving this message. Habakkuk 1.5. This is the substance of Paul's argument that the Old Testament scriptures expect a resurrection and it's fulfilled in Christ. Don't you understand? That's what he's telling them. Now, what's the response of the people? What's the response of the people in Acts chapter 13? As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Come back and tell us again. Well, it turns out this is one of the great lessons of of history. You can't wait till next time to really let these things sink in. You better handle it today. Better invite Paul over for lunch or something. Let's talk, this up, uh, let's talk this through some more. Now, when the meeting in the synagogue broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. That view that church growth is the norm, that if you're in a sound church, you should be adding numbers, because after all, in Acts chapter 2, God was adding to their number daily. So that's what we should expect. And that's a very popular thing in, in uh, some ecclesiologies. Uh, I've been in a school where some teachers would say that if your church isn't growing in numbers, then you know, there's something wrong with you. And um, the problem with that is that there are um, a billion Muslims. And I think that they're misguided in their beliefs. I think that they're, they don't have the truth. Of, of the word. And, and we could go down the line of different worldviews and the numbers. You can't play numbers. Numbers don't, don't mean anything. Well, this church has millions or thousands and thousands of people. Yeah, yeah um, that's not the measure or the metric. And so Paul is pro- poised to see a massive explosion of, of gospel interest, right? There's about to be, the whole town comes out. We should think Pisidian Antioch is about to build a giant church building, right? Because the whole town comes out to hear him. I mean, this looks like Billy Graham in the 80s, right? They, 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 they've got to have a football stadium for football and Billy Graham because you have to have a big enough place and enough parking for everybody to come out and get saved and walk that aisle. Whew, that's a lot of walking, a lot of aisles in the football stadium. 
right? That's, that's the church growth ideal. But it, it, unfortunately, it's not what happens. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming, speaking against what Paul was saying. What? They're jealous? We've been here in this synagogue all these years, and we have been meeting every Sabbath. And here this guy comes along, and the whole town wants to come here from the Jews now. Why aren't we good enough? What, what's wrong with our message? this flash in the pan. So it's purely carnal. Pure, it's not even about theology at all. It's about jealousy and selfishness and self-centeredness. Remember, if, you, if it's about the pot, then it can't be about the flower. If it's about the ring, it can't be about the diamond. We are the setting. We are the, we are the, we are the, 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 um, the saddlebag for God to bring his message. That's what, that's what we are. But what a glorious thing we get to carry. And, and so, right, that, that's so destructive here where they're jealous. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. After all, he has a warrant from Jesus to go to the Gentiles, and he has been primed by the Lord Jesus to expect this reaction, this rejection. And of course, carnality has sunk in and, and all that. And so, hey, we're going to the Gentiles now. Which is why, by the way, as we keep reading, when we get to Acts 22, why the town, why Jerusalem, the mob, try to tell and tear into pieces for saying we're going to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, I've placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth in Isaiah 42. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust off their feet and protested against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with the Holy Spirit, with joy in the Holy Spirit. And as you keep going in the story, he is stoned to death. He's left for dead in Derby. Derby, another one of these little towns, one of these cities of southern Galatia. And I think he died. I think they killed him. They dragged him out of the city, left him for dead. And then miraculously, he gets up, shakes something. He's like, okay, let's go back into the town. It's not necessarily going to be that they receive your message, but God's still going to use it. It's so helpful. So we have to really just focus our attention on him. What's the takeaway? Well, the reason we're studying this very powerful passage in Acts 13 is because Paul's entire argument depends on the expectation that the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant in Jeremiah, that the Old Testament actual covenants, not the theologically made up ones that the covenant theologians conjecture, but the actual biblical covenants depend on resurrection, all of them. They're all presupposing the resurrection, and it starts, and it must start with the resurrection of Messiah. There has to be a forever king who has a forever body to live on the forever throne to rule over all the nations forever. The, the, the whole thing depends on resurrection if, uh, if Abraham will enjoy what was promised to him, if he gets to have the land. And so uh, Jesus is your answer. How is this going to be? It's going to be the resurrection of the Messiah. And so what's Paul doing? He's preparing the world for the coming kingdom of our Savior. That's what we're doing. We're preparing the world for the coming kingdom of our Savior as far as God has sent this message. What do you mean we're preparing for the kingdom? I mean 
that you and I are recruiting those who with Christ as the bride will rule in the coming kingdom. That's what we're doing. We're not building the kingdom. We're not polishing the kingdom. We're not setting up the kingdom. We are recruiting and training those who will rule with Christ in the coming kingdom. When it comes before, when Jesus comes back to earth after the tribulation and before the millennium, because Revelation 19 precedes Revelation 20, he comes back and takes the kingdom and then rules in it in the thousand-year reign of Revelation 20. You and I will be with him. We'll be with him when he comes back because we'll have already been with him for the entire time of the tribulation while receiving our judgment. And when we come back with him, we will be part of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. We will be, because the sons of God, that's us, because revealed to planet earth, we will be the way God removes the curse from planet earth. I don't know how he's going to do that, but I know he's going to use us to do it. It's a magnificent destiny we have, and God doesn't tell us that much about it. There's not a lot of detail, but it's where we're headed. It all begins with the resurrection. Our Father, thank you for the promise of resurrection that we can't read the Old Testament now. Like Paul, like Jesus, we'll find out like Peter, we can't read it without expecting that the resurrection was the hope and had always and must always be the hope of Israel. Father, help this, before, this, this doctrine uh, strengthen us and encourage us. Father, we need courage to tell the truth, even if it's going to hurt us. We need, like the Apostle Paul, to tell the truth, even if they're going to pick up rocks, because we know of the resurrection. Strengthen us in Christ's name. Amen.